Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 341 of the podcast. It is May 15th, 2019. I like every episode of the podcast, but I am particularly excited that I had a chance to talk with today's guest. He is Dr. Rob Hackett. He is an anesthesiologist in Sydney, Australia. And I've seen Rob's work in the news and on social media. He's been known around the world for his role in what's now called by some the theater cap challenge. It's a method for improving communication and thereby improving patient safety and outcomes. And as we talk about today, Rob had the idea of writing his name and his role on his surgical cap with a Sharpie because this would be helpful in the operating room. Eventually, he and others have gotten printed caps made. You can see a picture of this if you go to leanblog.org slash 341. Now, I posted about Rob on LinkedIn. It spurred a ton of discussion. There have been more than 200,000 views. And as I wrote there, Rob has unfortunately been trolled, threatened, and bullied for the seemingly benign and obvious improvement idea, both in the workplace and online. It seems that it's interesting to see that outsiders to healthcare and those who are new to medicine seem to find an idea like this to be obviously helpful. They're not threatened by it, but those who have been in healthcare the longest seem to struggle most to accept it. So, you know, even with all this, I appreciate Rob's perspective that those who oppose this idea, for whatever reason, probably aren't bad people. They just have a different view and and probably some old habits or cognitive biases that they're stuck in. So, you know, the interview here goes for over an hour. I think it's... think it's really interesting listening. One thing I'd like to do is produce a shorter audio piece that's more like an NPR news story. Um, So maybe I'll I'll end up publishing that here on the feed and and that becomes more shareable. There are a lot of sound bites um, that I'm going to share online in different ways. But if you go again to leanblog.org slash 341, there's a full transcript for this episode. You can find links um, to Rob's website, uh, which is uh, psnetwork.org, where you can, and you can search social media for hashtag theatercapchallenge. There are videos and all sorts of other things on the webpage. Um, so as always, thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to hear past episodes about healthcare improvement and other topics, or if you'd like to subscribe, you can go to leancast.org. So we are joined today by, again, uh, Dr. Rob Hackett. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Good morning from Australia. <laughs> I appreciate you being up uh, so, so early before your day's work to have the conversation here. Um, can you introduce yourself, um, you know, talk a little bit about your, uh, your professional background, your career in medicine, just to kind of help set some perspective? Yep, Mark, Mark, I'm from the the UK originally, near Liverpool, so grew up in the NHS, um, studied medicine in Sheffield, uh, did my first year as a house officer in Sheffield in the UK, and then uh, came over to Australia for what was supposed to be a year, uh, that was back in 98, um, I met my now wife after about two weeks, <laughs> and ended up staying, so... Uh, yeah, so uh, then started a career sort of in anaesthetics um, at the start of 2000. Um, and my work now is based around Sydney. I work at, in eight different hospitals. One's a, a major public hospital in Sydney and uh, seven private hospitals of different sizes. Um, yeah, I have no formal training whatsoever in ergonomics. I'm going to use the term ergonomics from from now on trying to avoid the term human factors. But um, yeah, my, my fascination for patient safety really started probably around 2008 after, be, after going to a very uh, upsetting death of, uh, uh, of a young lady who happened to be uh, the daughter of a theater nurse. She'd had a baby herself three months earlier. She died from an air embolus from a a central line being inserted uh, and everyone involved in a resuscitation sort of knew her personally um, mm. after an hour of trying, we never got her back. So it's a pretty high motivation uh, and driver in my life. Um, the other thing is um, uh, as a junior uh, or as a, f- a fellow towards the end of my training, um, breaking down the door of, uh, of um, a colleague who'd taken her own life as well, um, took a, an overdose of propofol, uh, you know, th- those things motivate me. They, they drive me. They, they are certainly there in the background. Um, and, yeah, being exposed to um, some presentations by some uh, people like Terry Fairbanks, um, who uh, works for MedStar. He's a system safety expert, and he's, he says the quickest way to become psychotic is to understand system safety and then go and work in healthcare. I, mm. I can completely appreciate where he's coming from um and that that was probably back in 2015 and and since then i've just been getting myself in more and more trouble um but (laughs) at at the same time you know learning more about how to drive change in the industry uh and, and i'm able to fall back on the and 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 interact with so many people from all over the world uh who are and selling me with new, new ideas and new thoughts. And, yeah, I certainly feel that I uh, can see a, a, a completely different way forward for, for healthcare. Uh, and we're really at an embryonic stage of it, mm-hmm. uh, a healthcare that does become a lot more efficient uh, and works in the favour of, of our patients. Um, at the moment, we have... A front line uh, where the environment only becomes 
more complex every day, the more complex right. it is, the, the greater the risk of error. And um, yeah, with those errors, then you know we're we're in, we're in trouble. Um, and also, the, the other motivation is is from trying to introduce a safety change, probably about four years ago now, and um, pushing it hard, and eventually being pulled into a room and having my career uh, and my livelihood threatened. Um, and then the realization that. You know, as a senior consultant and ethicist at that stage, that individually um, we don't really stand a chance trying to introduce the changes that need to happen uh, for ergonomic science to be introduced into the industry. Um, so we really need to work together um, as a team of teams is uh, where yeah. we come out. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. yeah. So uh, before talking about you know, some of, some of the solutions and including uh, the theater cap idea that, that you've had. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the causes, you know, in the, the lean methodology, we, we try to make sure we understand the problem and, and the scope of the problem and, and the causes. But can you talk about from the data and, and things that you've seen, some of the primary causes and, and including miscommunication? How does that, uh, what, what does that lead to? Okay, so I mean, there there is good data that seventy percent of errors are due to communication problems. Um, I, I suppose I, I tend to see things differently. I don't tend to look so much at what caused this issue. What what I'm really looking at is how can we improve? Uh, how can we improve? You know, and I just look at the environment that I'm in and look at the inefficiencies and the bad equipment and the poorly designed equipment, the poorly designed systems that surround us. Um, how, how can we simplify those things? How can we standardize those things? Um, you know, we're, we're, we work in a highly, poli highly policy-driven industry. You know, um, every hospital, even every department seems to have, you know, they may even have every department in every hospital may even have five or six revisions of the same policy document mm -hmm. telling us how to do our jobs properly. And that is just insane. Like, um, you know, it's like driving around uh, and, and every town or every road that you drive down has a different set of road rules, you know, and mm -hmm. that is, it's completely bonkers. It, um, but that's, that's the best we seem to be doing at the moment in healthcare. And, um, you know, to try and push back against that is, is really, really difficult because it comes from a top-down, ingrained thinking amongst all of us in the industry that this is how safety is done. And unfortunately, you know, we are resistant to hearing things from elsewhere. There is a whole scientific discipline yet to be introduced into the industry. So, um, yeah, as far as, you know, it, looking at, sort of what leads to those mistakes it's not really so much focusing backwards it's it's looking forwards like what can we improve what can we improve and when you open your eyes to this it, it does drive you mad because you know i'm surrounded in many of my in many of my hospitals by bad design uh that mm -hmm. i know is killing people um mm -hmm. Uh, an, an example um, 
you know, and I, I take it to those levels is the oxygen cylinders that we're currently utilizing uh, in pretty much all the hospitals internationally. Um, the, in the UK, there were six reported deaths and 400 near misses just because of the design of these oxygen cylinders. There's like four or five things that suggest to you that the oxygen cylinder is turned on. Even mm. when, it, when it's actually turned off, you can even hear like a hiss of gas coming out of the cylinder, reassuring you that it's turned on when it's actually mm. turned off. Um, yet we, we're, we're well aware of this design issue, yet we do not have an industry that can remove that issue. Um, you know, in aviation, they've obviously just grounded some of the Boeing planes these oxygen cylinders will have killed way more people mm. than the Boeing planes, but we can't do anything about it and, and push on an individual level to try and change that. You will be taken out. So I think, you know, we, we can, it's sad to hear, we, we, we talk more about that more in the context of um, the theater caps. And so maybe, maybe we transition to that of, of, you know, the idea that you had, where, where the spark of it was, um, it's kind of a visual um, solution. So I'll, I'll, I'll put pictures on uh, the blog post for the episode, but let's kind of walk through, um, I'll let you tell the story of, of what, you know, this, this seemingly simple, really innovative practice is. Yeah. Well, it really, it really was, I mean, obviously the, the ergonomics thinking, um, but it was really sparked by, uh, the event where, you know, I was, I was brought into uh, this room trying to introduce another obvious safety change that, uh, you know, I actually sent out a survey, 48 out of 50 of my colleagues wanted that safety change. None of them were pre prepared to stand up um, and push for it. I found all the evidence, presented all the evidence, presented it in a cost-beneficial way, um, but it just wouldn't happen. And then I, you know, then I was... Brought into this room eventually, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, the C CEO of the hospital, the head of uh, my department, and the head of critical care. Uh, for an hour, I, I mean, I had a support person there with me. I was suspicious that something like this might happen, so I've luckily taken someone with me. For an hour, I was, you know, attacked, um, verbally attacked. At one point, the head of critical care department looked me in the face, pointed at me, and, and he said. I don't care who you are or what you do, but if you do anything like this again, you are out. And it's like, wow. And I walked out of that meeting and I thought, wow, this is, this is a real worry. Here I am, a senior consultant elitist, um, trying to drive a change, obviously better for patient care, and they will go to these levels to maintain the status quo what you know what do you do and then it was like a year of deep thinking deep learning had to read more find out more about myself um and there was there was a book that I always wanted to read but never really wanted to read because of the title uh Dale Carnegie's book uh mm -hmm. how to win friends and influence people it's a it's an awful title to a book but it just made a lot of sense it's over 100 years old there's a whole chapter in there on the importance of names, uh, and it, you know, it also dawned on me that that it, we do have this checklist from Atul Gawande. It's very poorly mm -hmm. performed. 
in many hospitals, there is a tick box on there, and it's probably the most poorly performed part of the, the actual form, uh, which says all staff members introduce themselves uh, to one another by name and role. So, you know, you, hospitals throughout the world will be ticking this box and the actual procedures not performed. Uh, it's been brought into a culture that's not used to it. Um, but despite that, you know, I'm really struggling to remember the names of people and we'll be going to these uh, arrest situations and there I am sort of coordinating 40 people whose name and role I just don't know and I know it's an inefficient thing and I know patients will benefit a lot more if I am able to coordinate it better and I was literally just running to work one day and that's when it dawned on me um, we have to write our name and roll on our hat because it's the only last it's the last place that we've really got it's the last bit of real estate so I mean Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things it's another book that's, that's influenced me um, you know it's yeah. you know you have to design things based on the the constraints of, of, of your environment. Um, so the constraint of our environment in theatre is, you know, that we uh, uh, cover our tops with sterile and warm gowns, uh, lanyards are, are, are put down tops, any anything that's, any badges that are on your top, they just become covered up. So visually the people that are around us everywhere, you can't see their name and role. Um, so on, the, on their person, there's actually even a policy uh, that, you know, we're supposed to do this. So, I, you know, when I thought about it, it just, it became more and more obvious. But it, the, the thing that, you know, was also in the back of my mind was there, I knew the resistance that there would be to it. It's like, here is something that's obviously better for patient care. The patients are going to be able to see this. Everyone will be able to see this. And what they'll also be able to see is the resistance that comes to it, despite it being better to pay for patient care. Patients will start to realise that healthcare is not aligned with their best interest and it will be a huge advertisement for the safety movement mm -hmm. and ergonomics in itself. And that is why, out of all the projects that we push, I, I push this very, very strongly. I see it as a huge advertisement of a different way to go um, and it's been brilliant uh, you know the way that we work uh, as a team of teams we're able to because of social media social networks we've got a, an 80 strong team uh, you know with professors of communication uh, Theodore Grancharov is, is in the you know pitches in every now and then he's, he's got the the OR black box the video recorder in mm -hmm. theatres, we've, we've got all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life. And, and working in this way as a, a huge collaborative team gives us a lot of stamina. There are people generating data points from lots of different hospitals throughout the world and just sending it in and we're just putting it in one place and then sending it back out to everyone in the world and say, look, have a look at this, read this, read this new bit of data. Just recently, we've received a 30,000 dollar grant to uh, run some simulation and other assessments. So, you know, if, for me, at times I, I sort of step outside the box and think this is absolutely insane that we have to go to this level to show people something that is so bleedingly obvious. Um, but unfortunately, that is the nature of healthcare and, and how we've been 
conditioned over the years. You know, you you have to show the evidence. You have to show the evidence. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, what? Show the evidence that displaying your name and role makes it easier for people to understand your name and role. Like, how ridiculous are we? Come on, let's let's move on. And then, then it, it, it sort of sends a message to people. It's not evidence, is it, that you need. It's something else. It's something else that's going to tick your buttons on, on a personal level and allow you to introduce this change. Um, and I think probably one of the other massive drivers that we'll see is the more people do it, the more other people will become comfortable in, in doing it. It almost becomes a viral phenomenon and a huge advert for ergonomics and the introduction of ergonomics into healthcare. And it's been, it's been great because it's allowed me to interact with people like yourself, Mark, as well, you know, and, and, and these interactions is where I see it at. I, I, I sense your frustrations as well at, at times um, and a lot mm-hmm. of others' frustrations with, it, with an industry uh, that is resisting these changes uh, to the detriment of all of us. And it's, you know, everyone wants patient safety to improve. And I think the more that we start to move in this right direction, the more people will become comfortable with it, uh, the more it will become mainstream, the more it will become the norm, and the more that we'll all benefit. So, um, yeah, I think it just takes a lot of constant agitation from a bigger and, and, and increasing group. So we will get there. Yeah, we'll, we will get there. So what, uh, you know, and it, it, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. I'm trying to think of even how to ask the question, like what, so the idea is as simple and important and seemingly effective, um, an idea uh, like, you know, putting your name and your role on your head so everybody can see it and not have to yeah. walk to the whiteboard or, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, as you've laid out the case that um, improving, you know, knowing people's names helps improve communication, which helps reduce errors, which saves lives. How, yeah. how could people be opposed to this? Like, I'm curious if you can tell like very specific examples of like yeah. the first time you did this, what were some of the uh, negative responses of, of what you about what you were doing? Doing or what you were trying to encourage oh, others? Yeah. You know, I, I, I knew they would come, uh, you know, and I, I knew, and they, and they still do come, and they come in droves, and, you know, I'm, I'm uh, threatened legally. I've been uh, bullied, intimidated. Um, you know, I'm trolled on so- social media. Um, but I knew it was there. And, and the other great thing is it, it exposes this culture for others to see, so other people can see how bad these, these things are. But... Basically, uh, yeah, one of the surveys that we're about to publish, um, yeah, over a thousand people, basically demonstrates there's a lot of support of it for, for the initiative. You know, patients in particular, you know, 90, uh, 92%, they, they completely support it. They want us to do it. Um, Frontline staff, 86.5%. And when you look at those that are new to healthcare, um, the, the nursing and medical students, it's almost unanimous. It's like 100% of them want to do it. And the, the support is least from those who've been in healthcare the longest. Um, you know, even then it only dropped down to 55%, but perhaps that's where you start to see that a big issue is these are the people with the greatest influence. Um, 
And when you work in command structures, as we do in healthcare, that influence can be particularly strong. Uh, you know, within one of my hospitals, uh, I am still not allowed to even present on the initiative. And it, the, the other great thing about the initiative is it's been able to narrow it down to a specific individual who's so vehemently resistant to the idea and intimidatory in his behaviour and he's surrounded by a group of people who are reticent to approach him because then, you know, from below and above, because they see their careers will then be under threat as well. Mm. So uh, the the managers above him are fearful of approaching it, even just as much as the people below. So this one individual is able to drive a whole culture throughout a whole uh, theatre complex. And it's not just for this one initiative, it's for lots of other things. And, and, and uh, one of the things that strikes me is this idea of cognitive dissonance. So if you, if you have to, if you accept change, then you have to accept that what you were doing before wasn't as good. And we, we work in a very emotive profession. You know, people die at our hands. How dare you say that we weren't doing things well enough. How dare you say that? It's very, very, very offensive. Um, and and it is. Um, so we resist change and we put up every possible obstacle that, w- that we can in, in resisting it. Um, you know, so things that are thrown up, uh, yeah, it's going to cost, and then you show them it'll cost less. It's actually beneficial for the environment, the CAPS initiative, you know, all, all these disposable CAPS, but, you know, one of my bigger hospitals will dispose 100,000 disposable caps a year. They're made from viscose. They're just you know, really, really detrimental to the environment. Um, other things that are thrown up there, infection control. Well, in, infection control, the, the actual infection control uh, group or specialty are so upset that they are often used as a barrier to resist change. Um, they've actually put out, published in a lot of their articles um, that, you know, the only benefit for hats uh, or theatre hats is actually in stopping the shed of hair uh, and, and that's it, you know. So um, you don't need to put a, 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 a disposable cap on it all the time, but, uh, you know, bang, it's, it's uh, it en- enters policies, blah, 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 and then you try and push back against those policies and uh, it's, it's really, really, really hard. But um, So every, every single obstacle is put in the way, um, you know, and then it's like, oh, you've got to show the evidence before this can, can be brought in as well as another obstacle there. So all of these obstacles are put in the way and then when you've got past all of those, it just turns to threats, uh, intim- intimidation, ostracization, bullying, all of these things are seen. And they're all, they're, 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 they can all be applied to any of these ergonomics in, uh, initiatives as you try to bring them in. Um, but the CAPS just helps really expose them for what they are. The, the other great thing about the CAPS so, is that because they've got such a visual nature, not only do they, when you get into an environment where people are wearing them, you actually feel a lot more comfortable as an individual to wear them. Um, the other thing is it actually starts to expose those hospitals, those institutions that have a progressive, forward-thinking, uh, patient-centred, patient-minded 
um, thinking. Um, so Gloucester Hospital in the UK, for example, they've just gone and bought caps, name and roll caps for all of their staff. Uh, we're just working on a map at the moment as well of all the hospitals that have um, introduced uh, the Theatre Cap Challenge initiative uh, at some degree within their hospital. Um, there's a lot of support in the NHS in the UK. Uh, they've got a, a very sort of quality-driven, quality-minded um, uh, sort of culture. Um, and I think they may well lead the way on this, but it's also nice that some of my hospitals have started to take the initiative on as well. And I think, you know, it will just see more and more with time. Um, and I do like this idea of impacting on institutions' reputation to help drive change. And I think that's really what we are ultimately going to have to do uh, as a general a group, as a general public, um, and allow the public to know um, that the hospital that they're walking into has a patient-focused, patient-centred culture uh, and and thinking and I think just as you know if you you go uh, to an Airbnb or, or if you get into an Uber we're able to rate those we need to look at this sort of idea of of um, comparing hospitals uh, and allowing frontline staff to have their input into comparing hospitals and and, and everyone else as well uh, so the NHS has started doing this um, they started to do this a bit in New South Wales as well, uh, creating league tables. Um, at the moment, they're fairly subjective league tables, um, but we can make them objective uh, for each for each of these projects that we're trying to drive. Um, yeah, we can look at every, every equipment type out there we can look at and we can start to, to rate it M much in the way, uh, I'm not sure if in the US you do this, but... In, in Australia and in the UK, they have energy efficiency ratings for all of the uh, equipment or, or for fridges and, uh, and domestic right. equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we, can, we can do something very similar uh, collaboratively uh, for all of the healthcare equipment that we interact with. How, how usable is this equipment? Now, I know in the, in, uh, the US right now, um, a guy that works with Terry Fairbanks, Raj Ratwani, is, is going to Congress um, and presenting about the issues related to electronic health recording. Uh, he's put out a great video presenting on that as well. Um, and, and they've started to grade how usable are the EHR systems, how well were they tested before they were brought to market. So the vast majority of, of, of the equipment and the systems that we're interfacing with uh, hasn't been tested, uh, not only not usability tested, but not even tested properly. I mean, the, uh, you know, at the, at the very top, not only is it inept, but it's also corrupt. I mean, the, for, for those who haven't watched The Bleeding Edge yet, um, You've got to watch that. You know, you can start to see documentary film. Yeah, yeah the, the documentary. You can start to see how sinister things are at the very, the very, very top. Um, you know, and it's bad. It is really, really bad. I started to realise this again myself probably about three or four years ago. I was actually called to speak to the Australian 
commission. Um, and they were the ones that started to reveal this to me. You know, we, we have in the, in Australia, we have the TA, TGA, which is your FDA equivalent in the, in the, in the UK, they have the MHRA that they're, they're all, um, aligned and, um, designed based on the FDA and, and work as the FDA do and just follow the FDA's lead. Um, so I was trying to introduce some other obvious changes. And I said to the Australian guys at the Australian commission said, look, you know, all of this seems to stop at the TGA. Um, and they said, well, you know, we're not surprised because they're completely funded by the companies that they're supposed to govern. Um, <clears throat> and I was sort of, I glossed over that, what they said initially. Um, and then I went back to look at it and thought, hang on, this is a, a real conflict of interest here. Um, if we're trying to introduce safer equipment and safer systems and, and more usable equipment, then we need independent input into this. We can't have... We can't be controlled by the companies, and unfortunately, that, that is what's going on right now. Um, so uh, to give you an example, one of the antiseptic solutions, um, chlorhexidine, we, there's been a series of ongoing cases of uh, patients having it injected inadvertently, people mistaking it for local anaesthetic or, or saline or other colourless yeah. solutions mm -hmm. because it's so poorly coloured. Um, but there are companies that make it very, very vividly coloured. Uh, the companies that make it poorly coloured, so there were, there were two. I, I got in touch with them. Uh, one of them, you know, met up with me. They uh, tried to understand what the issue was, and then they went, right, okay, we don't want to be involved in, in causing patient harm. We'll go back. Please do give us time. And they spend a year, and they, they managed to introduce a dye in, into their mm -hmm. product so that we're less likely to inject it. They are still trying to get that product licensed, you know, three years later through the TGA. In the meantime, another big company, uh, like a, a big, big company, uh, they just turned around and said, look, we don't care. We're TGA approved. Um, it's just like, what? Mm. You can't, you don't care about this issue, you know, and they, they don't, you know, it's uh, if, unless we make them care, they won't care unless we start to impact on the reputation of these big companies, unless we start to stop buying from these big companies who refuse to listen to the front line when we want to introduce patient safety solutions, then they will not change. So uh, we need to we need to force their hand, um, and yeah. we can do that collaboratively. Um, and perhaps right now that is my biggest threat. Like these people will come at me as well next. So. <laughs> watch this space so, yeah. I mean what, what, what I hear you saying is that the response uh, or the, the you know, if you will resistance to the cap with name and role on it it goes to, to deeper issues than that you said earlier you know if I heard you right you know the people who uh, speak out as being opposed to this simple innovation or maybe exposing themselves as the people who are status quo defenders. And I'm curious, like how much yeah. of that is just, you know, power dynamics, you know, I, as an engineer, it's hard for me to completely relate, but like, you know, is, is it just that the, the, the more senior people um, just view <clears throat> improvement as a threat to their reputation that, well, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there is a fear of, uh, of losing some control. Maybe, maybe there is a fear of, 
doing things in a different way. Um, we have to overcome that fear uh, within the, none of these people are bad people. No one's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, every, everyone wants patient safety to improve. Uh, we just need to understand how we've been so heavily conditioned in these environments. You know, even, the, even this one individual who uh, in my own institution has, you know, threatened legal action against me. He's not a, bad person he's highly highly dedicated to healthcare he's highly highly dedicated to looking after patients um you know um he's an amazing person um and i see you know it is hardest for him to accept it more than anyone else and he may never he may die and never accept it um, but if he is, if he is, is able to accept it, then, you know, my respect to him is, is greater than to anyone. It's, it would be so hard. It is, it's almost like uh, telling someone they have to change religion. It's that, it's that culturally ingrained. Um, and, and this is what we're up against. We are very, very strong cultural Animals were very, very strong social thinkers. Um, and to agitate against that, you really do expose yourself um, to uh, a, a lot of um, threats and intimidation that will come your way. Um, so it is difficult. But, yeah, just, just quickly before I forget, just going back to the equipment issue, um, I uh, in, in the UK they have uh, a company called Witch and in the in uh, in uh, Australia, they have a company called Choice, and they they assess domestic equipment. Um, they, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to go and meet up with Choice magazine and, and go into their factories where they assess independently all the equipment that is that is used. Um, and a really really nice CEO walked me around. Everyone was, uh, you know, really good, positive frame of mind, and they were asking me why I was there. And at the, at the conclusion of uh, our meeting, um, the, the CEO said, look, I, I think you, you're where we were back in 1953. Uh, and that really hit me. It was just, I thought we were back in the 70s. But I, I, it's just dawned on me, we're back in 1953, but in a much worse situation. You know, there is no independent assessment of the equipment and systems. We need to bring it in. Uh, but unfortunately, we're working now on the front line in some of the most complex environments, uh, which uh, we really struggle to to uh, simplify. Um, and yeah, and another example that I'll touch on because it's so ridiculously simple. Um, and I know I've mentioned it to you, Mark, but I'll bring it up again: is the um, the the arrest alarm. So we've, I've started timing how long it takes. Uh, staff in theatre to find the arrest alarms. Every minute that goes by, the chance of a patient being shocked out of a, 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 um, a shockable rhythm decreases by 10, 10% every minute. Um, so just in trying to find the arrest alarm, one of, one of the staff members took two and a half minutes. This is just one room. Um, took two and a half minutes at and then had to give up. They just couldn't find the arrest alarm. There were so many other objects mm. 
Gosh. which is light styles on the wall uh, that look like they could be an arrest alarm. Uh, you know, it could end up being hidden behind a paper sheet, uh, a pat slide. So this amazingly simple design at Monash uh, Hospital down in Melbourne is just to draw a red stripe uh, from the ceiling down, uh, like a big thick red stripe of paint down to where the arrest alarm is. It's brilliant in its simplicity, but healthcare, it will, you know, it will take us years to bring something like that in right now. It's, uh, this is how bad healthcare is and how resistant it is to these things. So, um, yeah, we need to change. So, um, you, you said that, you know, the hospital where you're going to today, everyone's wearing the caps. There's one other, one of your hospitals, I, I read from one of your other interviews, one of the hospitals we, where you've been barred from even talking about it. Can you maybe yeah, kind of share yeah. some of the kind of the details in that specific case? Uh, yeah, but basically it's, um, you know, before the initiative even had a hashtag, uh, which the hashtag was started by uh, a, a student midwife at the time, Alison Brindle, uh, who is based in the UK. But probably about six months before that, I'd been walking around for a while with my name and role on my hat. And I'd, I'd, I'd sent emails to senior representatives of uh, the theatre to say, oh, look, can we trial this at least, you know, give it a go. Like, we don't have to force it on anyone, but let's just give it a go. See, And didn't hear anything back, didn't hear anything back for months. Um, kept emailing and eventually was told, yeah, we've just knocked it back. Uh, then, um, But I, I carried on doing it. Uh, there, there was a nurse in my theatres who also, um, within her own theatre, she got other staff to to put their name and role on their hat with a bit of sticky tape. Uh, mm-hmm. Then the, the senior nurse came down and insisted that they take them off and told her, told them that they looked unprofessional. Uh, so I, I got the senior nurse, uh, when I heard about this, I got them to come into my anaesthetic bay and, and look through the window at, at, at the theatre that I was working at. I said, look, you know, have a look at the people in there. Can you tell me their names? She could... She could name two out of the, the seven. And I said, well, look, welcome to my world. This, this is the world that I'm working in, and you are stopping us from introducing something that would make that better. Um, and they just walked away. You know, you, you, can't, you can't really combat that too much. So, um, so then, then what happened, you know, we were putting pictures out on social media and, my, bro- my brother-in-law is a creative director in advertising. I, you know, I've been telling him about this in- initiative for a while, but then Alison Brindle put the hashtag out, hashtag theatre cap challenge, and she put a picture up. At, and I just thought, that is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. That is so good. It reminded me of the ice bucket challenge that went around in America. And that's just <laughs> right. Yeah, this is, I rang, I rang my brother-in-law, uh, the creative director is straight away. I said, look, look at this. It's just happened. This is, this will go off now. Watch this. And literally three days later, it was in the times newspaper in the UK two days after that in the Sydney morning Herald. And it's, it, it, it's built and built and built and built and built from there. It's a bit of a, a slow burn. Um, but yeah, it's great. But it, so when it was in the Times uh, newspaper and in the Sydney Morning Herald, I then 
got in touch with uh, the senior representatives of this hospital. Again, look, it's just been in the, the newspapers now. Can we trial it now? Um, again, uh, uh, we've discussed it at a meeting. It's been knocked back again. So, so this is, um, yeah, no, this is uh, unfortunate. Um, so uh, constantly tried to uh, introduce it and pushed in a gentle manner. I've actually uh, received funding several times from different companies and uh, thanks to the companies that have given sponsorship and, and bought caps anyway for staff uh, in, in these hospitals. Um, and they've been allowed, that no one stopped them from wearing them, which is good. Uh, and they've been allowed to wear them and they want to wear them. Um, but still there's a lot of, uh, you know, I'd say within that hospital, probably two or 3% of people are wearing name roll caps within the theater complex. Um, and I feel that the biggest fear comes from staff knowing that it's not supported from above um, and them seeing it as a threat to their own careers if they do this thing, which is obviously better for patient care. So it's like we, we're torn, you know, this is, right. um, yeah, this is, uh, what are they a moral injury that is created from you know we're, we're sort of slaves um to to at least three masters one one is our career and our family and and um you know and our, and, and our jobs uh another another one is to our employees and to what our employees want and and another one is to do what's best for our patients and when these things don't align then it causes moral injury. And you, what you're seeing here is people, instead of doing what's best for patient care, they're doing what's best for what their employees tell them and what's best for them maintaining their careers because of what their employees tell them. Um, so it's really, really difficult. Uh, and, you know, I've carried on pushing, and it's led to eventually me being threatened with legal action recently. But, Luckily, you know, I do find myself in a very unique position um, in that, you know, there has been this exposure. It becomes very hard now to, to threaten me or push me out of a hospital um, because of the exposure that it will generate. Um, and, but what not to do and what I don't ever want to do is to butt heads with these people. Uh, it, as I said, everyone wants the best for patient care. We've just had different ways that we've been conditioned. And I, I think yeah. um, the way forward comes through understanding uh, the motivations um, um, behind uh, their thinking. Um, and, yeah, just gradually, uh, you know, if, if there are these people who are insistent that they will not change and do not change, then the the best option then is to gradually take the influence away from them. So another great book that I've read recently is um, Our Iceberg is Melting. I'm not sure if you've come across um, yep. that one. Is, that a, is yeah. that a Ken Blanchard book? Um, I can't remember the, the author off the top of my head. I'm There's a series of these little business fables. That's, uh, that's yeah. a John Cotter. That's a John Cotter. Book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a John Cotter. John Cotter. Definitely. See, we're all bad with names. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is reality, you know, in 
and in the um, from from this uh, working group, we basically got this data that after first introduction, humans only remember thirty percent of names when we're not distracted, and then we readily forget them. We are very, very bad across the board at remembering names. And the other thing that comes into it is that we become too embarrassed to ask again. We see it as um, almost an affront to others. Say, "Oh yeah, I forgot your name." You know, so so we we don't we don't ask them. And, and also the the thing that's embarrassing is for people to come up to us and tell us what their name is if we've met them before because it, it also suggests to the, the person uh, that they, they haven't got a good memory. And so, here, my name is this. Mm-hmm. I know your memory is not very good. Here's my name. Uh-huh. So there is this uh, cultural aspect of why we just don't carry on sharing our name after we've met um, other people before. So, yeah, John Cotter, great, great book. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, and it really is, you know, this iceberg is melting concept, you know, healthcare, uh, unfortunately, uh, adversity from medical error. And, the, you know, everyone sort of poo-poos some of the data out there, you know, uh, medical error being handed as the, the third greatest cause of death, and then it causes a ruckus, and people go, no, it's not. It's There's a real problem with the data, blah, blah, blah. What is very, very apparent is that adversity from medical error only appears to be increasing, and it makes complete sense to me that in this system of healthcare that we have, that would completely be the case. Um, if every day we have a new piece of equipment or a new system introduced, uh, and we have a constantly renewing workforce, then the environment just gradually becomes more and more complex. The, the more complex, the more likely we are to make mistakes. But unfortunately, at the moment, our, our response to these mistakes is to write another policy, uh, send out another alert, you know, create another education framework. That in itself then just introduces even more complexity into the system so we just keep making more and more and more of the same mistakes and unfortunately going back to the uh the my first initial driver in, in this uh the this central line that the air that had got in through the central line um you know another thing that spurred me uh four years ago i was given the raw data on the central line air embolus deaths from New South Wales, the state that I'm in, um, we'd had something like um, 51 cases with six deaths over a span of a year. Um, Mm. They were just the reports. All of these cases completely avoidable. Um, So I I was approached by the Clinical Excellence Commission in New South Wales, and they said, look, you know, do do you have any suggestions on how we can help fix this issue. And so I looked at the raw data, I could see how every single one of those cases happened uh, and it made a lot of sense to me. And then I sat down with them um, and said, look, do you have anyone who works as they would in the aviation industry uh, who investigates this stuff? And And they said, oh, yeah, we've just employed a human factors expert in healthcare. He's the first in Australia, a guy called Thomas Loveday. He was the first human factors, uh, we'll call it ergonomics expert, to be employed in healthcare in in Australia. He left. Uh, 
six, nine months ago. We have no ergonomics experts at all in healthcare in Australia. I think there's probably one or two in the whole of the NHS at this stage um, and maybe a smattering in, in the US. Um, what we do have is a lot of people who think they know what human factors is, but they probably don't understand it. They've never really been trained in it uh, and their understanding is certainly nowhere near these guys. I, I met up with this chap, Thomas Loveday, and a, uh, a lovely guy, and I, and I said, uh, look, I, I think I've got a, a bit of an idea how we can fix this problem. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've brought together a lot of the forms that we have into a single form, just focusing on the salient issues. And I, and I handed it to him, and, uh, and, and he said, right, yeah, that's, that's really good. What you want to do is take that to the nurses on the wards who are going to be interacting with it and get them to tell you how it will fail. And that's when it hit me. It's like, oh, wow, these people think completely differently to us. Um, what is it? What, what, what do they know that we, that we don't know? Uh, and there is a lot that they know that we don't right. know. And, and really, that's what I've been learning about over the last few years. Um, with, with, the, um, with, the, with the Clinical Excellence Commission, eventually they put out a, a clinical focus report. In fact, I, I presented this within one of my presentations uh, just two weeks ago to the registrars and said, look, you know, uh, who's seen this clinical focus report? Uh, it's a room of 30 people, uh, 30 inictus within New South Wales. None of them had, and I don't expect that any of them will have done. You know, this, this was the, the pièce de résistance. This was how, you know, the Clinical Excellence Commission was going to stop this issue. No one's even seen it. There is so much information out there. You know, writing another policy or writing another document isn't going to have any impact on the front line. Right. I, I subsequently met up with the people from the CEC. I said, look, you know, it's a great document. You do realise it will have no impact. And they looked a bit upset when I told them that. Uh, six months later, I bumped into uh, a few of the people from that group at the train station um, and I said, look, how many more deaths have you had over the last six months? And they, they, mm. couldn't, they couldn't actually say it. That, you know, but they, the lady on the, on the platform just held up a hand and said five. So they'd had another five deaths within that six-month period after releasing the pièce de résistance of, of how they were stop the problem. And no criticism to them. These are great people. But the other, the other issue we have in healthcare is that healthcare governance or healthcare uh, governors as individuals, they have a very finite lifespan. Uh, you know, they move from one job to the next. Uh, uh, within the first year, 30% will have moved to another role. Uh, their average lifespan is, is, is three years. We, there is no organisational or very little organisational memory in, right. in, in healthcare governance. All of the people that were involved in releasing that document have now moved on. Uh, they're not involved in that project. Or, but I've, I've continued it on uh, through the patient safe network. Um, one thing that we did put out was uh, a video um, and uh, an animation video, um, a, a short one, uh, and, and it just highlights the issue. And within that video, it says at least one person dies 
every day from this issue. Uh, and, you know, from my reading and from the data that I've collected, I think it's actually worse. I think today somewhere between three and seven people will die from a central line embolus right. across the world. Um, and every single one of those cases will be avoidable. Uh, and uh, the simple interventions that we would be able to put in place to stop this, um, we still haven't put them in place. So, uh, and, you know, what, you know, one of the presentations that I give talks about this. The second presentation uses uh, one of the, the simple interventions and, and the resistance to it to explain resistance uh, within the industry that we're seeing the caps as well. Um, and it's really sad. It's really, really, really sad. You know, that, you know, I work in an industry where I know people are dying because of our errors. And at the moment, we seem incapable of changing that. You know, but right. there, is a, there, is a, there is a way forward and uh, I, I can see what it is. And yeah, it, it occupies pretty much all of my thinking space at yeah. the moment. But uh, yeah, we will get that. Oh, it, it, there's a long, long history of changes taking 19 or 20 years to be adopted in healthcare, yeah. even things that seem yeah. so obvious in hindsight. You know, there's a lot of things that are discouraging. I feel, I feel the same way. Looking, one thing that's very encouraging is just scrolling through Twitter and the hashtag theater cap challenge and seeing the smiling faces of people yeah. with their name yeah. and role on their hat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here's one I'm yeah. scrolling through. It actually says Deborah Lee, chief executive. So good, you know, good yeah. for her. Um, yeah. 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 Leading by example, right? Yeah. And, and, and that is great. Uh, so Deborah Lee, uh, you know, never met her. Uh, and this is, uh, but she's the CEO, but looks of things at Gloucester hospitals. They just bought caps for all of their staff within theater. Uh, another, um, and another um, comment that came from that tweet was uh, from an elitist down in Melbourne. It's like, wow, CEO in theatre. I've never even seen my CEO. I mean, and that, this is the reality. It, 25 years in healthcare, I have yet to have any manager at any level come to me and say, what is it that we can do to make your workplace better? that needs to change. That needs to change. And it's obviously changed in that hospital. Uh, they have a great culture. Um, and I want people to see that. And I want our patients to see that. And I want them to know that you go to Gloucester Hospital, they have a progressive culture, and you are going to get much better care than anywhere else. And this is how we work. We start impacting on the reputation of institutions. If they're not doing these things, you know, we, people will be able to see it and, you know, your reputation is, is at, is at stake here, you know, um, and, and lives are, and that, at stake. And that's how, yeah, lives are at stake, reputations of institutions are at stake. And this is, um, this is how we will have to work for now until it becomes accepted part of healthcare. Uh, you know, we will have to push quite aggressively uh, yeah. and, and impact I on, uh, uh, hospitals' reputation until economics. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that you're pushing. I know the world is pushing back on you. 
a lot of ways, even scroll, just trying to scroll through pictures of uh, smiling faces with hats. I see the people uh, pushing back. Yeah. Uh, the, the trolls yeah. that are out there, but it, I mean, again, yeah. this is, this is what it's about. It's about exposing that negativity uh, that exists out there. Um, I've got a thick skin. I, I, I can, yeah, I can understand. <laughs> I, I can understand why these people are, are the way that they are, uh, and you know, I get that they're good people as well. Yeah, um, yeah, they're, and, they're and, and they're asking. Yeah, they're they're good people, but my gosh, they're stuck. Um, yeah, yeah. Hope we can yeah. help them. I mean, you know, the, there's somebody yeah. pushing back, like you know, where where's the evidence that proves this is a good idea? Well, where was the evidence? That said, not yeah. having yeah. the name yeah. on the caps was a good idea, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and the reality is we have a ton of evidence, and I push it on to these people, uh, but they'll still say, oh, we need more, we need more, we need more. Yeah. And I could exhaust them with evidence. It's so obviously better, you know, and I have no fear that running simulation studies will not, you know, show that this is better for, for patient care. You know, it's just, it's so ridiculously obvious, but it just, it just exposes. I mean, we've been, we've been ingrained in an evidence-based um, a conditioned practice, which, you know, I'm completely supportive of evidence-based medicine when it's used appropriately. Evidence-based medicine was never designed to disprove basic science, and this is what these people are trying to do, and it's just being uh, there used as an obstacle to change. But, um, no, I mean, whilst whilst I talk about things uh, often in a negative way, there is a lot of good, and, and it's, I know, you know, thank God for social media or thank goodness for social media because I've been able to meet so many, 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 many passionate people around the world who are, you know, they're as passionate, if not more passionate than me at driving this and being able to connect with, with them uh, and, and help drive this further and further is just brilliant. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it, it, it will change. And, you know, if we didn't have the internet, then we wouldn't be able to change healthcare in, in the way that we're about to. So, um, you know, massive kudos to everyone out there that's pushing for improved patient care, um, you know, because it will come uh, and it will come into the industry. And, um, you know, my hat goes off to everyone. My hat goes off to everyone who's, helping push forward um uh, uh, you know the patients uh, managers the manufacturers that are coming on board you know other healthcare staff it's just it's great to see it start to move so it's yeah. um well, I, I want to really thank you, Rob, for, for being here today and, and sharing what you've been doing, what you've been facing, what you continue uh, to fight for. So I appreciate that. I know, I know you have to get off to uh, the surgical theater, so I don't want to yeah. hold yeah. you back from that. But um, I want to encourage people to go uh, visit uh, Patient Safe Network, uh, psnetwork.org. Um, Rob, as a final thought, can you share a little bit about that organization? Yeah, basically it's... Uh... It, it, it's a network. Any, anyone can be involved. What we're just pushing back out and driving uh, are just great ideas uh, and, and, and great change uh, and great improvements. Um, and there's tons, and it just comes. I mean, people send it to me, and, and, and we, we generate collaborative groups. Um, 
that focus particularly on that project and then and then we just push it out and try and drive it everywhere i mean all all of these um all of these projects will have international resonance uh and it, sometimes all it takes is just a couple of completely passionate people and they can drive things really far there's a there's a big change just a, about to happen in emergency departments and elsewhere we're looking at something called entitled oxygen monitoring uh the data that we've got from this this working group uh pretty much driven by two passionate individuals dr matt oliver who's in sydney um and dr nick caputo uh who's in uh, who's in new york um yeah they, these guys have never met each other uh, and but yet we've been driving this project for over sort of three years and it's so fascinating seeing this go and what we've what we've shown is probably at least less than 25 percent probably less than 10 percent of patients outside theatre right now across the world are being pre-oxygenated, given sufficient oxygen before they're uh, put off to sleep and have a breathing tube in. And just by right. uh, allowing people to see the entitled oxygen, we've able to flip that, you know, completely the other way and now 90% of people. And it's just um, are being pre-oxygenated properly. And it's just all it takes is a few passionate people and what the network gives uh, are, are great tools for those projects to be to be driven um, you know networks through uh, connections through other people throughout the world connecting with advertisers connecting with the manufacturers connecting with everyone uh, and, and just transparently keeping it out there and saying look this is where we're up to who knows where the next or where the amazing ideas uh, are coming from. You know, they can come from people who are not on the front line, um, you know, anywhere. Um, so we're able to tap into that, and it's just great seeing it grow. So, uh, Mark, I really appreciate the plug, and that's uh, very, very kind of you. Um, and, yeah, look, really appreciate what you're doing as well in the industry, and, and stick with it. It will get better and better. Well, I hope so. So thank you for um, thank you for those words. And thank you for joining us here today. Um, for the people listening, um, you know, go to the blog post for this episode. There'll be all sorts of links and, and more that you can check out about um, our guest, Dr. Rob Hackett, and, and the others who are involved in, in this really important movement, not just around the theater cap, but around patient safety and improving healthcare. So Rob, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for being up. Um, so early in Sydney. No my, my, my pleasure, mate. All, all the best. You too. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.